In this segment, Joe talks about the events that lead up to his firefight with the Taliban and when he got shot. So the Afghans, instead of waiting for their helicopter, they run to the next nearest helicopter, which was the one we were supposed to take. So they run out and get on the helicopter. We run out there. We're getting shot at, you know, small arms to include belt-fed machine gun fire. And they're not getting off. I don't necessarily blame them because I wouldn't want to go back into that hell either. So we're like, just go. You know, we don't want to get shot in this open field here. You know, we want to have a, a fighter's chance here. So they lift off, three helicopters lift off, and then it's just us, fast team members, and I believe two Australians left. So we take cover in a ditch. And, of course, all the gunfire is focused on us at this point. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Speaking of that, what was the booze situation during your tour? Well, you know, the U.S. military is one of the only, they can't have really any alcohol drinks. Um, A lot of these other partner forces, you know, they can have so many beers a month or this and that. So um, we would kind of maybe, um, I can confirm nor deny this, bring over some booze in some of our containers when we go over there. And even though we were staying on some of these bases with the military units, they really could not come in and search our rooms, for say. So maybe if you had a morale and welfare check that was coming, maybe or maybe not, some people would put stuff in our rooms. <laughs> ah, maybe or maybe not. You know, I can neither confirm nor deny there, Senator. I don't recall, you know, all of those good phrases. Yeah, I don't know if the statute of limitations have ran ah, out yet. Look, this. trust me, at this point, pal, they got bigger oh, things yeah. to worry about. So uh, I think I think you're in the clear. Yeah, and that reminds me, too, being over in Islamabad. It's hard. I mean, you can drink in certain of these countries like the UAE. You have to have a permit or a passport, and you can get certain things. And that some of their bars downtown, um, the big hotels, they have bars. But we found the best place to go get beer was over at the British Embassy. Those guys in Islamabad had the best beer. They tried to serve us Corona with the lime that looked like it was like nine years old. It was so shriveled up. Reminded me of Murph now. Oh, Jesus. You know, <laughs> that wrinkly face, you know, and the, the lime is like, nah, fuck this, man. We, we want some real beer. So, Well, and if you could get stuff over there, it was so expensive. One of the beers that you could get over there, which I think is disgusting, is Heineken. Um, but you could buy that. Now, I wouldn't say fairly easy, but they had that available. Oh, my God, if you can buy plastic explosives and weapons and machine guns and poppy seeds, you sure as hell ought to be able to find some good booze. You got to be resourceful. Yes. No, I was going to say, so let's, uh, so you're back now, and I know um, we want to get into the second tour, but I don't want to shortcut, you know, your tour in the Honduras because you still got to make a living, right? You still got to pay the rent. So they decide in their infinite wisdom that you need to do a TDY, right, down to Honduras for a while? Yes, we had a group, uh, one of our teams, um, uh, Echo team was going to be the Western Hemisphere team. And they were short of some members on their team. So they were going to Honduras and they were going to do these things called ATR, Air Track of Interest. And these are these small kind of Cessna type planes, maybe a little bigger, that are coming from source cocaine countries. And they're landing in Honduras in these rural landing strips, which is pretty much like a dirt road. 
And they would come in at night, and then the cocaine was either sent by land or air into Mexico, then up into the United States. So we were working with Joint Task Force Bravo over there with the U.S. military, and they would be monitoring um, planes coming from these source countries that, for say, weren't like filing flight plans or trying to fly under the radar or just look suspicious. So we would be staged up over there and look like one of these planes was coming. We would get, um, we would launch in a, a CH-47 with a Honduran um, tactical response team. And then when it land and these strips, we would um, assault them and try to recover the um, illegal drugs. So right before we went over there, we were doing this other training and down in Florida, special forces training. And we had another one of our groups, Charlie team went over there and they had launched on one of these missions and end up getting in a pretty big firefight, but seizing a large amount of cocaine. So joint task force Bravo was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Let's pump the brakes here. You know, we're just trying to provide you a minor transportation role and we don't really want to be involved in combat. Over Wait a minute. There. Which branch was this? Um, we were working with the Air Force. <laughs> God damn it. I got to call my Air Force people. This is, what do you think's going to happen? I mean, this is not just a taxi service. I mean, you're talking about cartels, drug trafficking. And Murph, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you ever know the cartels to be armed down in Colombia? Occasionally. Yeah. I mean, not, well, yeah, every time. <laughs> oh my god my air force people what is wrong <laughs> and there's some military you know, army pilots in there so when we got there they used every excuse why not to fly mission well the loom is uh you know not good well it's two degrees too hot or the wind's blowing five knots harder than we can launch so every time you know they make us do all this practice but when the rubber went to hit the road. Oh, we can't launch. So our air wing came down there and we had, you know, some, you know, super kind of Huey aircraft where you couldn't fit a lot of people in there. Basically you could fit, you know, a couple, you know, two pilots, a couple um, fast team members and a couple hundred and counterparts. So we actually went up on two air tracks of interest and we actually got on them. But the problem is that the, the smaller air helicopters, you know, you're up there for hours at a time. They don't have what's called the legs enough fuel, you know. So, and basically we're not going on the ground with two helicopters and all these bad guys down there. Um, anyways, you know, the best we'd hope for is get a location pinpoint where they landed, you know, maybe do, you know, a couple rotations if they're shooting at us, you know, maybe we could, you know, have rules and get the fire back and, disable the aircraft down there but that's the best you're gonna hope for so both times we landed low on fuel and we had to go back but kind of a crazy story about this whole thing is um it was very publicized that we were down there and they knew we were down there and um one of the major drug dealers where the area we were at was Porter castillo he left the country when we came he left because you guys showed up in country yes he actually left before we got there because he knew we were coming. So one of his lieutenants in his drug traffic organization had this bright idea. He's like, okay, I'm going to get DEA to go away. 
so my boss can come back. And how much better way to do that is we're going to kill a couple agents. <laughs> I guess they never saw Narcos Mexico, huh? Exactly. So so this guy's career is not long. I, I can just already predict that. This, this guy's not going to have a long career in the drug trade. No. So, you know, in the morning we were staying at this one hotel and they had this little, like, um, airstrip at this other hotel, the Christopher Columbus, not too far from us. And the guys would get up in the morning and we'd go run and do some PT and stuff. So this, this drug dealer, Lieutenant hatched this plan and that he's going to kill the big guy, which is me. And the guy with the funny shorts, which is another agent, Dave Clawson. He wore these goofy multicolored shorts when he'd go run. So, but our Honduran tactical response team, they were staying in town too. And one of the sh guys that one of the, this lieutenant recruited knew one of our, one of the TRT guys we were working with wanted to them to help kill us. So he goes to his buddy, which is the Honduran tactical, tactical response guy. And he goes, they're going to kill two agents. And they gave a description of us. So they were able to get us the hell out of there back to the main base. Soto Cano, so we pretty much, you know, pulled up all our stuff and went home at that point. But, you know, this brainiac, this lieutenant in the organization, you know, to kill us, the main guy finds out about this. And we know through experience, especially like with Kiki Cam Rain and stuff, you kill a federal agent, oh, there's hell to pay. So and the main trafficker's like, you stupid son of a bitch. So the main guy had that guy killed. Oh, well, no no retirement plan for idiots. Oh, no. Well, yeah, and you know what? It stopped that recidivism. He didn't get to be an idiot anymore. No, one-time idiot. That's it, man. <laughs> Terminal disease, lead poisoning. <laughs> exactly. Did, now, did how did you find out that they had uh, uh, taken this guy out? Was that Did that happen while you were still in country? Oh, that happened months later. Okay. We got intel reports. Did, did they ever find his body? Was he a, like a public uh, display? I'm not 100% sure about that. I just know that he got killed. Well, he'll never he'll never darken your doorstep again. So room no. temperature is a good way to solve this kind of stuff. But so, I mean, how so how long between your first tour and your second tour? You're down in Honduras for how long? Like two months. And this is um, early springtime. Okay. And then when you come back, what do you do between that and your second tour? And then how do you find out you're going on a second tour? Do you volunteer? Do they assign you? No, my team was just on rotation again. So we, I knew, we knew when we were going back, we were going to go back um, late summer, early winter tour. So we were going to leave for Afghanistan in the middle of August. So you come back, decompress a little bit of Honduras, then you start your pre-deployment training, you get up to speed, and then we head over there <clears throat> in mid-August. So, like I said earlier, every time we go, things are a little different. Because the units we're working with in the past, they may be available and may not be available. So during this particular time frame, a lot of the U.S. Special Forces, which were, they were doing these things which are called village stability programs, which they would go out and live with the people in the villages to try to get them to... That's see, the Green Beret hearts and minds Yeah, stuff. hearts and minds. So get us to, you know, to go towards our beliefs and values, but that's a whole nother podcast to talk about there. So they were not available. What's long story short. So the Australian commandos ended up They're a, one of Australian special ops units. I kind of 
equivocate them to our army rangers. Uh, but they only could operate in the Helmand province area. Another real big insurgent activity area, uh, another big narcotics um, trafficking area. And that's where our Marines were based out of in Afghanistan at Camp Leathernecks. So a lot of times when we work with these new special ops units that we never worked for with before, is all this mot, mot, machismo and everything. I call Talk it. Mind. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us the real term. I call it dick measuring. They're like, yeah. who are you? What can you do? What can you can't do? Even though we're not special forces for say, we have a lot of the same training. We can shoot, move and communicate, you know, what the best of them. Our big thing we bring to the table is our drug investigation skills. And we were there to mentor the, um, our Afghan counterparts, how to do these narcotics investigations. So our fast team that was there before us, Bravo, they were working with the commandos. So they got to see what DEA fast was about. So we didn't have to go through all that BS. We hit the ground running. Now you talk about seizures. They were not used to us being there in this area. And they didn't have a lot of in-placed IEDs but they got lazy with their drug labs. So our second mission, we hit the biggest heroin lab at the time in Afghanistan. Just seized tons of stuff. Um, but we got in a pretty good firefight. And hey, but, but you can't take all of that stuff back. What'd you do? I mean, you're not you're not seizing in a sense. You're not bringing in a C one thirty or a Starlifter no, and it's taking out tons. It's of kind stuff. of like clan labs back in the states. You take photographs, representative samples, and you destroy the rest. Because you can't, you can't, there's no way. You can't bring it. And it's not safe. How'd you destroy it? Um, plastic explosives, thermite grenades. Sometimes we dropped an airstrike on it. So how um, much, how much dope up. are you talking about on this, on this second largest lab? You're, you're talking probably um, finished product, probably... A couple hundred kilos of heroin. Dang. Plus, you got all but the chemicals, and you probably chemicals. Got- but the thing was, a lot of the heroin that was out drying when the helicopters came in with all blew the, it all the way. Blew out the road, blew it all the way. Yes. <laughs> and all the cattle died, and the goats. And <laughs> yeah, the- they didn't give a shit. They felt good. <laughs> <laughs> they felt good going over. Hey, so but did, did so you know? I think the fun part of blowing some of that shit up was like, hey, I'll toss a few. Grenades, you know, give me some. Let me fire off some plastic explosives. Did you get? Did you get the chance to actually uh, do some of the good stuff? Oh yes, we get, we learned how to make standard charges with C four and all that whiz bang shit. So um, we carry kerosene out there to help burn stuff and thermite grenades and everything. And you know, you talk about hard landings. Okay, we had a hard landing coming in. Thank God, um, a helicopter I was in. We were to land um, like 100 yards away from this area we thought the bad guys were going to be sleeping in. And usually we have like these tethers on us. You're like tethered into the helicopter. And if we're flying with like the 160th, the Night Stalkers, they have no seats or anything in these helicopters. So you just kind of tether yourself with this, they call it a donkey dick. Um, into the helicopter, so if it crashes. So what do you sit on? I mean, if there's no seats. On I mean, the ground. Are- Really? And you kind of like dog piled all together. It's, yeah, it's a shit show. 
So usually, <laughs> all they got to do is turn the chopper sideways and just have all you guys just spill out. Hey, here you go. You want to land? <laughs> exactly. So usually you have this, you know, this donkey dick, and usually it's attached to something. Then usually, you know, you're getting like the thirty. You know, you're getting five minutes, one minute, thirty seconds. You're coming in. Usually you unhook, so you're not jacking around in there, and would hook beforehand. And we came in and hit the ground so hard. The helicopter started rolling on its side, and I'm like, oh, shit. The rotors are going to dig into the ground, and they're going to start coming through this fuselage. And we're, you know, we're all falling all around in this helicopter in the middle of the night, knocking all our night vision, you know, and we finally get our bearings. We come off the helicopter sideways, you know, everybody's, like, shook up. And thank God there was nobody in that first building, because if they would have came out shooting, we would have we had a bad go of it. Mm. That's a new Elvis Presley song. I'm in Kabul. I'm all shook up. (laughs) Exactly. So thank you very much. My work here is done. Thank you. They're actually able to fly the helicopter out of there, but when it back went back to the base at Leatherneck, they had to bring it back to the states to fix the helicopter. It was so tore up. Oh my god! And the fact, yeah, I could just see you guys bouncing around and they're like pinballs. (laughs) So after that, believe me, I didn't hook ever again to her on the ground. I don't blame you. Fool me once, pal. Shame on me. Mm Shame on you. I mean, so, um, so you've got these things going on now, eventually we're, we're working up into the final operation, you know, where you get shot. How long are you in country? Um, and what kind of things are going on? Cause the one thing I want to talk to you about is actually during one of your operations, you talked about your spidey senses. You ended up having uh, a confrontation with a, a tango, you know, a terrorist, uh, on a bike with a suicide vest. Yes. Let, let's walk through that operation. Okay, so this is a couple operations after that. We were going to hit a bazaar, you know, it's just a flea market type of thing. And the SEALs were there four months before us, and they found um, <clears throat> a lot of legal stuff in this bazaar and had a pretty good firefight. And at the end of the day, they were getting ready to leave, and there was a um, an insurgent with a small baby. They kept walking towards them. And they kept telling him, stop, stop, stop. Do not move anymore. Stop, stop. He wouldn't stop moving. He just kept walking closer and closer. So eventually one of the snipers took this guy out. And then once they searched the body, he had a suicide vest on, you know, carrying a baby, Mm. was waiting to get close enough to clack himself off. Was this in Kandahar? No, this was in Helmand Province. Okay. Um, this was the second tour where we're with the commandos. They could only operate in Hellman. So they're like, okay, um, we're going to search the bazaar. This happened. So be cognizant. Of they might try to get in on you with these suicide bombers. So we went in uh, the cover of darkness again. So we get in, take some areas. And then I'm in charge of one blocking position where I'm at one end of the bazaar and they said, take a bunch of shit and throw it across the road and don't let anybody, like a checkpoint, don't let anybody get past here mm-hmm. while we're searching it. So we set it up. And how many, how many, so also tell us about the, the, how many people are we talking about here? Uh, for the good guys, you know, how many DEA military guys, how, how big is this operation? We had our fast team, which we had about eight of us or so. We had the Australian commandos. We went with a bigger group, so probably had had at least 40 of them, 
plus our partner force, we had about probably 20 in the Australians partner force. They had about 20 to 30. So a good size force. We had some good ass going in there. So we set up and I was talking earlier about after first light, if they say morning prayer, they try to hit you. So it became light. So morning prayer, they tried to probe us a little bit and we fought it off. And, um, so we're taking a break and getting something to drink, but we're still watching the road here. I got my machine gun set up on the ground there. And well, my buddy said, here comes two guys on motorbikes. They like to ride these little 100cc, 150cc motorcycles. And I said, okay, if they keep coming, they get close enough, I'm going to fire a burst from my machine gun right in front of them. So they keep coming. So I fire a burst. They scatter and take off and go back. They get the piss. They get the, the message. So a short time later, my buddy says, here comes another one. It's a signal single guy on a motorbike and i said i tell him okay he keeps coming he had a carbine rifle i'm like fire a couple shots by him don't hit him and we'll see you and get him to turn around so he fires a couple shots guy keeps coming i said okay i'll shoot a burst from my machine gun in front of him i do that he keeps coming i'm like oh shit this guy means business so I get a nice sight picture from my Belfast machine gun and I give him a nice die motherfucker die burst and peel the guy off the bike. Well, explain, explain why you use that phrase. Cause that has a unique meaning to, to the Marines. Why, why use that phrase? When they're teaching them how to shoot a belt fetter cruise cruiser weapon, that's when you say die motherfucker die, you hold the trigger down and that gives you the proper burst of rounds in between when you're firing burst. Yeah, because you actually get less accurate the longer you fire one of those things because they start moving, you know, they start crawling on you. You've got to you got to control your, you know, like you say, your rate of fire and your burst so that you can stay on target, right? Yes, and you don't want to run through all your ammo, you know, um, right off the bat. Um, so shoot the guy off the motorbike, um, but we can't go do battle assessment damage because we leave our position, we're getting shot at. But we could definitely tell that the surrounding villagers really didn't know this guy because he's laying dead on the ground, and they're just pretty much walking over his body. So I'm almost 100% that guy had a suicide vest on also. So we um, searched the bazaar, finding all kind of stuff, and eventually, you know, they're firing at us a couple more times, and we, um, we hold them off, and then we get the um, get the hell out of there so it was just kind of um kind of a crazy day to say the least yeah but but that was part of your rules of engagement right i mean you've given the warning shots he still keeps coming you give even more warning shots and military age male i mean that's the way that they've delivered suicide vests you know and ieds before so i mean that obviously like clearly within your roe right yeah exactly and you know we gave him two separate times with warning shots uh, my partner and myself and when you're shooting a machine gun in front of somebody, you're kicking. But you believe me, you definitely know you're getting shot at. And that's significant, too, because in the United States, you're not allowed to, to fire warning shots, right? No, DEA warning shots are strictly prohibited. 
And except it, well, we used to fire warning shots. We said one through the liver. That was your warning shot. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that hurts. That could hurt a little bit unless you're getting shot with a, you know, nine millimeter. Then they just bounce off of me because I've still got that S on my chest. So, well, now that we've established bullets do really bounce off my chest in spite of Murphy's protestations. <laughs> oh, yeah, blow me West Virginia. By the way, I was very close to blow me West Virginia. I told you at the Virginia Tech game. Uh, we were down yep. there in Blacksburg. So, And you boys almost yeah, lost too. But we didn't. We got the W, not the L, which That's is on the true. front of your forehead. All right, so Joe, let's uh, now. Now let's now we got to get serious because this is the real serious part. So Joe, let's we're setting the stage for your final mission in Afghanistan, and so let let's set the stage because we know that we had been talking about special ops. Your second tour is compared to your first tour. Things had changed where it was more hearts and minds. You know, we're trying to win the hearts and minds, and so you guys were getting ready to do another operation. So let's set the stage for this in terms of what was the op. What was the op plan? You know, what were you guys out there to do? What was your complement of people and equipment? How were you guys set up to go on this mission? Okay. Um, we were rolling through, and um, one of the intel information we got that this bazaar called the Paik Bazaar in the northern Helmand province was selling illegal items again. They were selling um, chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, lethal aid items to include small arms and IED-making material. And our team that was there before us had actually hit this location with the Australian Special Forces. And they've got a pretty good seizure and gotten a pretty pretty good firefight um, during the operation. And um, the group supervisor of the FAST team that was there... Brett Hamilton, I think we talked about it earlier, he got shot in the buttocks. He got the Forrest Gump wound. A bee um, jumped up and stung him as he was fighting his way back to the helicopter. I was going to say, I'm sure you guys uh, didn't say that to his face either, did you? Or did you ask to see <laughs> the wound like Forrest Gump? <laughs> no, the problem was because Brett would have showed it. I never wanted to see all that. But I think it wasn't enough to, uh, I mean, was it serious that it took him out of action or was it uh, something that patched him up and he was back in the fight, you know, later? Well, he was, they patched him up and he stayed in country and I think he continued um, and going on operations after that. He's a hard old guy. Yeah. Um, so hardcore. So we got this intel and we knew we were going to go into the hornet's nest again. So we wanted to go at night to use our, technology with night vision and lasers but the only problem was the only air platform that we could get to fly us when us and the australians and our partner force could hit that location was this special mission unit um, it's a unit that was established to train afghan pilots for when we leave that they can um continue the fight over there as we seen the recent activities that didn't work out too well but <laughs> Uh, you beat, a whole you beat us both to the could, punch there, brother. We, 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 could, we could talk about another time. So, But the problem with these helicopters, they were old Russian MI-17 troop tra transport helicopters, pretty robust and pretty fast. They did not have night vision capabilities, so we couldn't go at night. So we were not real happy about that, but... We were committed to go. We're going to go. And then we get broken to us a day or so before 
that one of the helicopters is going to be all Afghan crew and piloted. We're like, whoa, uh, we are not happy about this whatsoever. But if we wanted them to fly us, that's how it had to be. So we decided that our Afghan partner force was going to fly in and out on that helicopter, that particular one, because in case the pilot decided to start his jihad that day and crash into a mountain, we did not want to be on there. So hey, let me, yeah, let me ask you a question too. Who, where'd you get the orders from? Who, who great broke that great news to you? Um, the commander of the SMU, the special mission unit. Yes. Well, one thing we haven't talked about yet, and I think we mentioned it in the pre-call, but this this was a serious concern because it's called green on blue. It's when, uh, and they've had several instances. We had a general shot and killed over there in a green on blue. Uh, the Aussies had been attacked this way. So this just wasn't something that you swept under the rug. This was a serious concern for people in country is that you had to wonder sometimes if these Afghan forces, if one of them decided today's the day, uh, I'm going to you know commit jihad and take everybody out. I mean, that, that was a serious concern, wasn't it? Very serious. And the problem was these insurgent units and the Taliban, they implanted people in these groups to just do that. You know, and it's just not a matter if it's when they were going to rise up and strike. Right. And that, and that way you don't know who your enemy is. Exactly. So... We're full steed ahead at this point, and we're going to hit this bazaar after early morning hours, just after first light on Halloween day, 2011, going with four helicopters. Like I said, the one's going to be with all our Afghan partner force on there, and the other one's going to be the Aussies. The other two are going to be the Aussies, and then we're going to have one with fast team members, and we actually had a couple Aussies on there. How us. many total team members did that make? So we figure for our fast team, we had Jared, Matt, Justin, Brent, the other Matt, um, myself. And did I say Paul? If I didn't say Paul, that would make seven of us total. We had two other of our team members where another part of the country getting ready for a couple other missions. So, and the Aussies had, they probably had um, at least, I would say, 20 or more, maybe 20 to 30 and then their partner force was probably about 10 or so plus. And then our partner force was probably around 15 or so. So we had a, a decent amount of people. So probably what, at least 50 boots on the ground when you guys hit? Yes. Okay. And so the plan was... Um, we all land in different locations. The There was a little compound outside of the bazaar. Our Afghans were going to go through that to make sure that's okay. And then we we're going to link up with them. And then the FAST team with our partner force was going to sweep through the bazaar and search. I was in charge of one of those groups with some FAST team members and some Afghans. And my other partner, Justin Vanderbilt, um, was leading the same group. They were going to search one end. We were going to search the other. And the Australians were going to 
provide um, outer security to hopefully keep the insurgents from moving in on us. But the problem being, it was a little mountainous mountain area in there. So they kind of had the high ground on us. So we land early morning hours. Um, everything goes according to plan. The Aussies get set up. The Afghans sweep that little compound area outside the bazaar. We link up. We start moving through the bazaar. Shortly after we were boots on the ground, we started receiving incoming fire. Sporadic, pretty inaccurate at this point, and we're used to this over there. So it's we're hard. starting to... You, you yeah, say you like know, it's, it's kind of like, like a, you know, blase, blase, you know. Well, but it's you're from a, Detroit. You're used to gunfire going off at all times <laughs> of the night. Oh, believe me. If that, the, the, not the gunfires and sirens, I can't even sleep. You know what? And before you go, what's the significance of them having the high ground for our listen, or high ground for our listeners here? That gives you a tactical advantage. It's better to be um, up higher, shooting down on somebody, and it's harder to, to hit your target shooting up. And it just provides a lot better of a tactical advantage. So we're beginning to discover some poppy seed in there, and the different stalls of the bazaars, and I'm standing by one of the open stalls behind this beat-up car. And I hear a shot fired. Like I said, no big deal. Then I hear it hit the car behind me. And then I feel the back of my neck burn. I'm like, shit. So I dump into the um, bizarre stall, and I put my hand on my back of my neck and see if I had any blood. I didn't see it. I didn't see any blood on my glove. I had uh, one of our Afghan translators look at it. He didn't see anything, but the bullet got so close to my neck that I could feel the heat of the bullet on the back of my neck. Hey, and Joe, we should dispel uh, one of these Hollywood myths and stuff. It's kind of like, you know, people think, oh, you get shot with a 22 and it knocks you off your feet and knocks you 50 feet back. But in reality, most of the time when you get hit with stuff, uh, especially, you know, like those 7.62s or, you know, you know, maybe smaller rounds, it's not so much the stopping power, but those things can go through you. Sometimes in a firefight, people don't even know they've been shot for a while, right? And that's very true. You know, it's like, like you said, like where you get shot in the leg and you just fall to the ground. And especially if somebody's committed, I've seen people take some major damage and continue the fight. You know, it's a lot of its mindset. And, you know, unless you get hit in a spot where it's lights out, you know, it's it's crazy. So I kind of had my guard up after that, using all the techniques and tactics that I'd learned through my years of law enforcement and the fast training and previous missions. So shortly after that, the Taliban did a call to arms over this little loudspeaker system they had, you know, saying, today's your day to die. We must drive the infidels out of our land. We must rise up. So at that point, the incoming fire drastically increased. So we could hear the Aussies really getting into it with them. And we had the Marine Air Wing providing close air support for us. We heard them getting into it. Now, what were they flying? Um, like Apaches and things like that. I sort of like, hey, and Joe, real quick, too, before we get too far into this. Of all the time that you had been in Afghanistan, had you ever taken around like in the vest or, you know, had been nicked or anything? Or was that was that your first tr like truly close call? That was the first really true call. Um, I've had other rounds where you can actually it sounds like bees buzzing over you 
when the rounds are getting pretty close. You can actually hear bullets, you know, fire by you. But that was the closest it's got. So they're really getting into it with them. We're continuing to find more stuff. And actually, we had another op we were going to go to after that. So I'm trying to conserve my water and stuff because it's hot out there. And um, so we begin the process of starting to photograph, take representative samples, and destroy the evidence items we found. And we were going to call the aircraft to come pick us back up. You know what? For our players out there, listen. To, I mean, listen to what he just said. He's got bullets zinging over his head. He's found the heat, felt the heat off of, the, of one round go by his neck. And you're still, my instinct would have been, let's find cover. Let's find more cover close to that helicopter and let's get on that damn helicopter and get out of here. But you, you guys are still processing evidence, taking your photographs, getting representative samples, and destroying what you have to leave behind. Now, that's a focus on a mission there. Holy cow. And not only that, Joe, you were mentioning earlier, too, I think, um, or in this situation, too, things got so hot and heavy, right? Uh, the, the Marine Corps, you know, and the close air support, some of the people, they went black on ammo. They had to go back and actually reload and come back. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So when you go through a lot of ammo on an Apache, that's that's a pretty intense gunfight. Yeah, they were letting them, you know, they were letting them have it to the best of their Best of their ability. And, you know, the problem is longer you're on the ground, the more time they have to amass troops against you, too. Oh, yeah. You know, so yeah. we're trying to bust ass and get the hell out of there as soon as you can. You know, believe me, we didn't want to be on there a minute longer than we had to, but the bottom line, a job still had to be done. Right. So we're almost finishing up. So we call for our helicopters to come get us. So we have to move to our exfil location. That's where the helicopters are going to pick us up for layman's terms. And um, only a couple hundred meters away, but then we get bogged down in the gunfire. So we actually have to wave the helicopters off and tell them we're not ready. So they went a short distance away, I guess, somewhere and kept their rotors spinning. So we eventually make our way to the Xville fill positions. So here. Now, is anybody in your, um, uh, anybody in your team, anybody taking any casualties yet? Anybody hurt? No, we didn't. No one got hit. Uh, that is fucking amazing. I, that's I'm, I'm talking about. I mean, think about this. You, they've got the high ground. You don't know where they're at. They're surrounding you. Yet you guys are able to fire and move, fire and move. And nobody takes a casualty to this point that, I mean, that's just amazing. Yes, the praise praise be to God on that one. Absolutely. And in fact, the Aussies run into their helicopter. There was they like hiding under these blankets in the wet them. Yep. So the heat, um, the seeking features of the helicopter can't pick them up. Tripped over this blanket, and there was a guy with a rifle underneath there, and they ended up having to kill him. Oh my gosh! So you know, that's the first time I've heard about the wet blanket. That's well, Steve. That's because you're a wet blanket most of the time. But um, but a wet blanket out on the on the field. That's something totally that. Well, but think about it. These guys are using yeah. low, um, you know, low tech techniques to defeat high tech. And sometimes I've heard them even using like those like like solar blankets for when you're injured or hurt to keep you warm to do that also. So four helicopters are coming in. We're set up. Three land, one doesn't. That's the Afghan crew and piloted one, the one we said we would never, ever get on. And why so didn't they like, land? Because talking to debriefing afterwards, with all the incoming gunfire, they didn't feel comfortable 
And with the other three helicopters, they caused they caused a brownout condition where you get a bunch of dust um, that goes into the air and dirt from the other helicopters' rotors that they couldn't see that well. You know, but a lot of it comes down to their skill as pilots too. They're not as skilled as ours. Well, did they ever mention the fact that they left their balls back to base? You know, and that's a whole nother story. And after the fact, their door gunner wasn't even door gunners weren't even firing, even though they were getting shot at and we were getting shot at. So the Afghans, instead of waiting for their helicopter, they run to the next nearest helicopter, which was the one we were supposed to take. So they run out, get on the helicopter. We run out there. We're getting shot at, you know, small arms to include belt-fed machine gun fire. And they're not getting off. I don't necessarily blame them because I wouldn't want to go back into that hell either. So we're like, just go. You know, we don't want to get shot in this open field here. You know, we want to have a, a fighter's chance here. So they lift off, three helicopters lift off, and then it's just us, fast team members, and I believe two Australians left. So we take cover in the ditch. And, of course, all the gunfire is focused on us at this point. And, and how many are left now, Joe, you say? The, um, the seven of us and two Aussies. Okay. So there comes the Afghan helicopter. It lands, you know, like 100 meters away or so, maybe a little bit farther. Do they fire their guns this time? Do the door gunners do anything? N- no. You know, there's an old rule. It's kind of like one of the worst things that you think the worst thing in a gunfight is to run out of ammo. Actually, the worst thing in a gunfight is to have too much ammo left over. I mean, if you're not lay- yeah. throwing lead down, you know, and suppressing fire and covering fire, I mean, anyway, we don't want to go off on tangent on that. We, we've got our own issues. You know, e- e- even if you're not actually, if you're getting rounds close to a target, they think you got them in your, your sights. So they're going to, most often not going to keep their head down. It's, a, it's enough to suppress them, right, to give you guys a fighting chance. You just got to fire a few bursts. You know, anyway, we digress. Let, let's not, let's not take away. So the set, the, the nine of you are out there, the helicopter lands. Now let's go from there. So I remember one of the, the last couple of things I remember is getting up to run and saying to myself, this is going to be a shitty run. You know, we have to run through a cascade of bullets, but I also know we cannot stay there. We have to get the fuck out of there, you know, and my heart's pumping and everything. It's like, we got to haul ass to this helicopter. So I remember getting up and running. I remember firing a couple rounds towards the direction of the insurgents that were shooting at us. And I, everything after this point is going to be told to me by my teammates later. I guess I got to the helicopter about mid pack. So what does that mean? About middle of the group. Okay. I wasn't like the first, but I wasn't the last. You were in the middle of the pack of the, of the, of the nine. Yes. So I pause outside the helicopter and start providing covering fire for my teammates. So once all my teammates get on or near the helicopter, my team leader said, let's roll. He taps me on the shoulder and I turn left to run on the helicopter. And that's when I get hit. We believe it was a armor piercing round from a belt fed PKM machine gun. It went through the right side of my ballistic helmet, which only stops handguns and frag, um, through my right temple, through the frontal lobe of my brain, 
and then out my left temple. And I guess I fell like a sack of potatoes to the ground. Now, what caliber weapon is that, Joe? It's like a 7.62. It's Massive round. Yes. So my teen leader goes to get me up, and I'm not moving, but after the fact, they said when I fell, it was odd because I did not put my hands out to break my fall. So he rolls me over, and then he sees there's a hole in my head, and some of the protective glasses I was wearing were shattered too, and they think I'm dead. So they pick me up, throw me on the helicopter. Another agent provides some cover fire for us. At this point, one of our teammates was in the helicopter yelling for the door gunners to shoot, hitting them on the shoulder, shoot, shoot, shoot. Finally, they fire like a, like a one or two bursts, and that's it. So we lift off. And in fact, the helicopter was taking pretty substantial damage. And in fact, one of the rounds they discovered came like an inch away from taking the whole tail rotor out. And if that would happen, it would have been a really bad day. Now, were, were these Chinook style? No, these are MI-17s. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Let's back up for just a little bit too. Um, Joe, when you were running to that, what kind of equipment were you carrying? I mean, what was your primary weapon? Uh, how much ammo were you carrying? I mean, just give people a feel for like how you were outfitted because that, that stuff weighs a lot. Yes. That day I just had my carbine. And so I had a full mag in it with 30 rounds and I had been shooting a little bit before that. And then I usually carried six extra 30 round magazines. Um, I had food and water in my pack. I had some plastic explosives. I had one frag hand grenade. I had my pistol with an extra magazine. Um, I had my ballistic plates. Over there, I didn't really wear soft armor because it really liked stopping much. So I had a front and back plate. I had two side plates. In my helmet, had my... Um, night vision in my backpack along with a counterweight you put on the back of your helmet when you put the night vision on the front it kind of weighs the front down so you kind of want something in back to um, counteract that a little bit and so you know you're 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 pretty heavy you know and when i you know i was about 230 something pounds in ops where i carried my machine gun which i was way down a little heavier i was over 300 pounds on the scale when I stepped on. How, how much was your, uh, with all the plates in your vest, how much did just that weigh? Um, you know, they're the newer, lighter plates. You know, I would say um, the front and back plate were a couple pounds each. And the side plates, maybe a pound or so. And we it, were. Go finish up, Joe, because I have a question about that. Go ahead. We were very fortunate. We were funded by the Department of Defense, so we got the best, the best stuff you could get. And there's one thing, too, this is kind of an inside baseball, but I think it's good for people to understand. When they look at the level of vests, I mean, the National Institutes of Justice used to have this rating like level one, two, three, three A, uh, you know, and then four or three plus, I think. And so the helmet you had, even though there are newer helmets today, but the helmet you had was really only rated for handguns, which is like a level or level three A. Um, and and some of the newer helmets now can actually take on rounds. I mean, they're, they kind of have the same armor as, as your front chest plates do, so they can actually do a good job of stopping these rifle rounds. But let's back up for a second. 
Had you now, did the helmet, did you ever find out if the helmet actually slowed the round down enough, that's what helped you to survive? Or uh, was it, was the helmet irrelevant? Or if you didn't have the helmet on, would it have been instantly fatal? I think it was irrelevant. It just, you know, an inch either way. Um, I think I would have been gone. And for all purposes, talking to the doctors after it, over 80% of the people who get my injury do not survive. It just, it wasn't my time. You know, the Lord had more for me to do in this world. I didn't see any bright lights. I also had a will to fight and survive, even though I was knocked unconscious. And <clears throat> I was in really good shape when I got shot. So that also helped my survivability. And my team was very highly trained in battlefield medicine that we got trained in. And unfortunately, we had to use it more than we would have liked in the field. Um, those are some of the things that led to me being able to survive. So let's talk then about as you were, as they put you into the chopper, let's talk, let's go from that point too, because you also talk about you had been firing your weapon so much too, um, that carbine, and you had a suppressor on it, right? Those things heat up. You actually ended up with a pretty kind of bad burn on your leg, right? From laying down on that. That is correct. Yes. Um, they threw me in helicopter, lifted off. And once they discovered I was still alive, they began to work on me. And one of the things with like facial or head traumas and emergency medicine, you want to make sure you have a really good airway. So one of the common things we use, one or two things, is a nasal pharyngeal airway, which is this flexible tube that um, the one end looks like there's a funnel and you put it up the patient's um, into the patient's nose and it goes down their sinus cavity and helps the patient breathe or you can do a cut in the front of the neck which is called a crike and you insert um, a piece of material in there to help the patient bleed breathe I'm sorry so they decided to do a nasal pharyngeal airway up my nose now I'll tell you that these things suck. Um, in training, we have to insert them in each other, and we can use a lidocaine to kind of deaden a little bit, but it still sucks. Or if we're training with the SEALs, they allow us to spit on them and shove them up each other's nose. And let, That just makes my eyes water. Well, let me tell you, I never had to do it to myself, but I went through EMT training and, you know, trooper crash management uh, training, and we watched the paramedics do those sometimes actually at accident scenes, and I'm telling you, you know, I don't know how you would voluntarily allow somebody to shove that through your nose, through your sinus cavities. But I guess, you know, the other thing, though, too, is when you're when you're shot or when you're hurt or when things need to get done, that adrenaline kicks in. It's like, man, all bets are off, man. We're going to get this thing done. And fortunately, like I said, for your teammates, everybody is well trained up on this. So they get this uh, uh, airway into you. What happens after? I mean, how long of a trip does it take you to get from the battlefield uh, to the aid station? Oh, probably about 20 or 30 minutes. But when they shove this thing up my nose, I come too. <laughs> oh, shit. Come up swinging. What, what, what'd you do? I don't remember that, which is probably good. Um, one of the things that I was talking and making sense, I said... Um, Get it out of my eyes. Even though the bullet didn't hit my eyes, the pressure of the high-velocity round going through my 
head ruptured both eye globes and attached both retinas really bad. And also said, I have to move my leg, which is my left leg. So they thought I was shot in the leg also. But then I realized like three weeks later and I had my wits about me intensive care. I had a big blood blister burn on the inside of my left knee from my suppressor laying on it and um, burning the inside of my left knee. And actually the um, military pants I had on, um, you could actually um, see were, were burnt from the suppressor. So they begin to work on me. And like we discussed earlier, it was just a miracle. I was the only one to get hit with all the incoming rounds that were popping up all around us. So they, um, they treat my head injury. They use um, stuff called combat gauze, which is gauze with clotting material impregnated in there and got the bleeding to stop. Hey, and Joe, on that point too, I, you know, I don't want to get too graphic for the folks, but, but the, let's just, so people get a real good visual of this, the round that went in, like you said, it went in your right side and come out your left side. Was it just blood that was coming out? Did it, did anything um, else? I mean, obviously you're going to lose some of the, 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 the skull cap, you know, and, and some bone and stuff, but was the injury, I mean, it sounded like, was it obviously worse than what it looked or did it also look really bad? Well, I know one of my teammates, my action group supervisor, Jared Johnson, he said um, the problem was is that he once they got the bleeding stopped, all they could see is my head just swelling up larger and larger and larger. And that he knew that there wasn't a damn thing that they could do about it in that helicopter. They just had to get me to higher care as soon as possible. Wow. That's creating a lot of pressure on the brain there, and that's that's fatal. Well, and that's, yeah, and like you say, but you're, obviously the Afghan helicopter isn't a flying, you know, fortress of uh, hospital care. So when, once you hit to the grid, so let's talk about you fly through there. These guys are doing, obviously, life-saving efforts to you. They're radioing ahead. And obviously a lot of this is related to you, but so tell us, once you land and hit the ground, what happens from there? Okay, we land at the um, the base we were staying at, Taren Kaut. Um, the ambulance comes out to the helicopter. Now, they didn't bring physically to the helicopter a stretcher with them. They thought that they had me on a stretcher. Even though we had them, they did not me ha have me on a stretcher. And I heard this commotion going on. So I stood up to walk off the helicopter. What? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. You did say that... No, you you say that again. Yes, I stood up to walk off the helicopter. Now, do you remember this, or is this what no, people told no, you? No, I don't remember any of this. No. So your your buddies say you got up to walk. How far did you get to walking off the helicopter? Um, I guess I stood up in the helicopter, and they're like, um, "No, Joe, we got you." <laughs> My God, is like, what the hell are you doing, son? So they carried me to the ambulance, got me in the ambulance, got me to the medical facility there which was a decent medical facility, but they didn't have like a designated eye surgeon and neurosurgeon there. So they, um, where, where is this? Is this, are you in Kandahar yet? No, we're in um, Helmand province in Tarrant Okay. Is this camp Leatherneck? No, it's a smaller base. Y'all had a separate base yes, out there. It's a, it's a separate base. Um, much smaller than Leatherneck. This is where the Aussies are. 
Um, we had some seals there too, and it's a smaller base, but you know, a, a good base. So they did what they could do for me there. And then they got a medevac chopper to fly me en route to Kandahar airfield calf to, um, bring me there for treatment where they had a neurosurgeon and eye surgeon standing by. So from the time you landed uh, at the outpost there till the time you were loaded back up and flown to Kandahar, how much time has elapsed now from being shot? So we know it took you about 30 minutes to get back to base. How long from base to Kandahar? <sighs> base to Kandahar, probably about another 30-minute flight or so, I'd imagine. Okay, so you're about an hour, you know, maybe an hour and a half into this, your injury, right? Or even longer because they worked at me at the, at the uh, medical okay. facility at Karen Cout for a little bit. So they stabilized you for transport and got you on a, a medevac out to Kandahar. Yes, with another one of my partners, Matt Stewart. So they had a neurosurgeon and eye surgeon standing by with another thing that worked to my favor, being it was Halloween day, so it was a slow day for the hospital there. So once I arrived, uh, at that point, I was being kept alive by basic life-saving BLS. And um, so they first take a look at me, and they didn't think they could save me. They just thought that they'd let me pass peacefully, and they'd send me home in a box on an angel flight. And angel flight are uh, military flights that bring deceased service members home. And you end up flying into Dover, Delaware, and you don't want to end up there. Um, so... But the neurosurgeon looks at me and talks to my teammates and talks about, you know, me trying to get the stuff out of my eyes and me getting up to walk off the helicopter. And he sees what good shape I'm in. And he said he felt strongly if he got me into surgery and started reversing what was going on as far as the pressure in my brain, he felt that he could at least get me home alive. Did not know how I was going to be. Even though I was talking on the helicopter and everything and got up to walk off with the, you know, additional trauma of the brain swelling with the traumatic brain injury and them going in to operate, just didn't know. So they actually had to talk the command into doing surgery on me. And in fact, the nurse that intook me um, I'm still friends with her, also Lynn Blankenbecker. I guess there's a line on the floor in the hospital where they intake patients, and then once they push it past this line, it's the surgical area, and they have to work on you. So I didn't find this out to my retirement party in 2019 when she came and spoke. She actually pushed my gurney over that line. Wait, hold on. So they were not going, they were just going to unilaterally make a decision that they couldn't save you and that was it? Yes. And um, the neurosurgeon talked him into doing surgery on me. Um, and then also Lynn pushed me over that line. Wow. Now, I did not know that. So once you cross the line, it's kind of like, if you're on one side of the line, it's like nobody knows what's going to happen. But once you're across the line, they've that's somebody's it's obviously somebody's made a decision. We're going to work on you. The surgical team has to take you, yes, at that point. So she basically violated rules, orders, or whatever else. She just, she believed in you enough to say, I'm pushing you over the line. Yes, correct. And, you know, and the fact that she came to your retirement party, that, 
That's pretty cool. Well, the fact that it, he didn't find out about it till his retirement party, um, I think that if I'd found out about that and I'd still been in any kind of shape, I would have gone back to kick some people's ass to say, what the fuck were you people thinking? Well, she actually tracked me down after I'd made it back to the States. And um, we had a reunion at our fast compound at and Stafford, Virginia there. And um, I'm good friends with her still. And the neurosurgeon that worked on me also, Rob Rosenbaum. That's dedication to your service. Outstanding. So he worked on me almost five hours, the neurosurgeon. They got the bleeding stopped, got everything cleaned up, and pretty much removed all the frontal cranial bone piece in the front of my head. A lot of times they try to save it, and then they'll re-put that in later on, but mine was pretty damaged, so they disregarded that so then the eye surgeon came in and she had to piece my eyes back together with a microscope and she asked the um, neurosurgeon is he really survivable am I going to waste a lot of time doing this so they felt strongly that I would survive so yeah she spent about eight hours piecing my eyes back with a microscope and she's actually won some awards um, with um being an eye surgeon over there and everything also. So they got me as patched up as I could. And then the next morning came around and they flew me back to the States. And we had to land in Lawnstuhl, Germany at the medical facility there. And I ended up spending three nights there because the pressure of my head was rising. Um, another one of my good friends and partners, Travis Brooks, he flew back with me. And pretty much they have this like medical aircraft that's equipped with all this stuff. And I pretty much had my own nurse and doctor for me on this flight. So um, during this time, they um, are in the process with the trauma team members. Um, DEA has a trauma team where if a agent or a task force officer is hurt or killed, trauma team is trained, members are trained to handle the family and to do things as delicate as possible. So they're they're in the process. They let my family know what's going on. I told my fiance at the time, if you can't get a hold of me, I'm just on a mission. I'll get a hold of you as soon as I can. You just got to worry of two people come to the door. And she was an intensive care nurse. She worked the night shift. And that morning, uh, two gentlemen came to the door that she didn't recognize. And they put their badge through, like, the little, you know, people, you know. And she opened the door, and I guess she started bawling. They're like, he's alive. He's in surgery. We don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, so, you know, they got her calmed down. Um, at the time, I had a second cousin on the job, Mike Sanavica. He was at headquarters at the time. He actually got a hold of my dad and let my dad know what was going on. So they sent people to the house and um, DEA people and everything, you know, to kind of get them. So um, they fly me back. I land at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, and they take me um, via an ambulance over to the hospital to Walter Reed National Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, which they have my family standing by to meet me. Now, my dad being in law enforcement for all the years he had been, he saw a lot of trauma. He knew what to expect. Um, he kind of briefed my mom up and what to expect also. 
But my fiance, even though she was a trauma nurse, intensive care nurse, I guess when she first saw me, as I was a mess, I had, you know, no frontal cranial piece of my head. I had tubes and everything all over. My head was so swollen. You couldn't recognize me. She put her hand over her mouth, screamed, ran out the room and passed out. Dang. And her dad had to pick her off the floor. Yes. You know, and she later said, you know, she's seen a lot of people in bad ways, but when it's somebody you love, it's different. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. It's like you can you can be prepared for, we had a trooper work many, many accidents. He got called to an accident. It was his mother, you know, a fatality. And, uh, you know, again, how do you prepare somebody for something like that? So um, so by that by the time you're at Walter Reed, how long has it been since you've been shot now? Four days, five days, longer? Around four days. So they, they bring me in there, let my family see me. And then they go in and, um, perform uh, a surgery to reattach my retinas in my eyes and, um, build my, um, frontal cranial piece up for anticipation of putting the plate in there later. They did those surgeries, um, on me. And then they put me in a induced coma to help with healing. And they use, um, I call it the Michael Jackson drug, the propofol, where it works really well. Unless um, you use too much of it. Use too much or just use it for sleep. It's really, it's really works well to put somebody in a coma because they can reverse it real quick. So I was in an induced coma for about a week. They brought me out of that, and only people they were really letting was immediate family see me at that point. So this is about the first memory I had, other than running to the helicopter and firing a couple shots, was then when they brought me out of the induced coma. Now, What was the first thing you thought when you woke up out of that coma? Tell us your state of mind, or what's the first thing you think about? I was thinking, I thought that I made it out of that mission. I thought I got hurt on another mission. But I later found out through my teammates that I got shot in that mission because I didn't—I did not remember planning another mission. And it was weird. Subconsciously, I kept having like these dreams that I was in Germany with my buddy Travis, and they brought us on this old German World War II bomber. And Travis was going to fly this thing. And I'm like, Travis doesn't know how to fly a plane. And they're like, okay, Joe, you're going to work this machine gun on this machine gun turret. I was like, I know how to work a machine gun, but I don't know how to work all these knobs and stuff to turn this thing. Even though I was out, I kind of subconsciously, I must have knew that I was in Germany for some crazy reason. So... Then begins my rehab. So I have to start. Well, hey, Joe, let's stop here for a second. So from the time that you are shot until the time that you are conscious now, you're brought out of the induced coma, are we talking about, what, two weeks? He, around that, yes. And so you have these subconscious memories of something you might have picked up in Germany. Is there anything else you remember, anything else that popped up during your time? Uh, were you able to remember... Or subconsciously know that family members were there, anybody talking to you? Was there any other memories you had? No, not when I was out, but I do, I did recognize everybody. 
that was around me at my bedside. So you had no memory loss at all either? No, other than, you know, from the time, you know, being shot until waking up in an induced coma, which, you know, they said, the doctor said, my, I happened so quick, my brain didn't have time to process anything, which was probably a good thing. You know, when I was a kid, I got hit by a car and riding a bicycle, and I have no recollection of that. And they explained it that your, your body, your, I guess your brain can block out things, you know, very traumatic, horrifying incidents like that. So you don't have that memory. Yes. So that was, like I said, probably a, a good thing. So they had me on a feeding tube and everything, and I had a trach in me, and I had to speak with a speaking valve, and I couldn't eat any <laughs> solid foods. I had to eat liquid, a liquid diet and fed by a feeding tube, and they began to um, get to the point where I'm going to have to do a swallow study to see if I can swallow stuff down my throat in order to start eating some more solid food. And I had failed the first couple of those and then finally passed it so I could start eating a little additional food. And, you know, they began to, you know, pretty much learn how to do a bunch of stuff over again. Hey, Joe, you know, let's stop right here for a second. What, when was the first time you, so you're out for two weeks, you wake up from the time you wake up, how long is it before you actually find out what had happened to you being shot, being put on the chopper, you know, going through Germany, how long did they wait to tell you? Uh, probably after I got out of the induced coma, a couple of days, probably. And it was weird because they kept waiting for me to ask what had happened to me, but I never did. I guess sometimes I knew I got shot and I knew I couldn't see but I never asked. Did you ask where you were? Um, I must've knew. I didn't necessarily remember them saying, if I asked, they knew I was in the hospital. So they must've been telling me that. How did you process your blindness at that point? Did you think it was just a temporary thing? Um, just swelling or, you know, or did you have any indication at that point that this is probably going to be at least for the foreseeable future, a permanent condition for the foreseeable future, a permanent condition. How did that, how did that sink in? Well, I'll tell you this, you know, being in there and um, listening to my teammates and my family members talk about all of these very tore up, wounded, young soldiers, sailors, Marines coming back from overseas, just tore up. A lot of these are young kids. Um, a lot of them never been married, maybe some newlyweds, maybe... Some had some children, but young children. When this happened to me, I was older when it happened to me. My daughter was getting ready to graduate high school, and I lived a pretty damn good life up to this point. So when I would start having a pity party on myself, why me, you know, and getting angry and upset, I would say to myself, Joe, it could be worse. Somebody always has it worse than you. And I really didn't know what I was going to be able to do with my life at that point. But I made a commitment to myself that I was going to try to do as much as I could do when I could see blind. So I made that commitment to myself. And when I talk to groups and things, I tell them I would be lying if I said it's easy. It's hard. Every day I got to deal with this. You know, and I have some pretty substantial PTSD, a traumatic brain injury, a frontal brain lobe injury, which your frontal 
lobe of your brain is like kind of your decision making and kind of your filter. And the doctors told my family that I could never be trusted with a credit card again, that I just might be at work and take all my clothes off. My mom's like, well, he didn't make good decisions anyways. He's not going to lose much. I'm like, thanks for the vote of confidence, Yeah, we won't mom. be able to detect too much of a change there. Plus, you were at DEA, the drinking and making bad decisions. That just kind of goes with the job. Well, you know, in the DEA oh, office, oh, that yes. might happen anyway. People just stripping down and going to work. You know, I was, you know, just warm. I'd take my shirt. It was hot in that, hot in that group. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the amazing thing is, you know, we joke about it, but we're not laughing at you, right? I mean, it's like right. you have, like most cops do, if you don't have a sense of humor or at least do something to get through this, the the PTSD is literally a killer. And I want to speak about that for a second. Um, having PTSD uh, that it takes the lives of 22 service members a day, um, it is the number one leading cause of law enforcement deaths. Um until COVID came along, but it, more cops died from suicide than from, and PTSD than from um, on the job actions. And we talked about this, so this isn't a shock to you, um, but we talked about how close did you come? I mean, how, how bad did the PTSD affect you? Oh, it, it was, it was not um, this past Christmas, but the Christmas before around that time, it was bad. I was in a real dark place. I've actually had a gun to my head several times, but I made the commitment to say, I am not going to live like this anymore. I need help. I knew I had PTSD. I knew it, but I didn't ask for help at that point. And it really didn't get better until I asked for help. And I started um, seeing a counselor for it. And I got this thing, which is called a stellate ganglion block shot. You have a stellate gland in your neck. And when you have PTSD, that gland gets all screwed up. And what they discovered is they can go in and deaden that gland. And if they do that, it's kind of, I was explained to me, like um, you get that like blue screen of death on your computer and you reboot it and it fixes it. So when they do that, they kind of is rebooting your brain for your PTSD. And when it works, it works tremendously. And most people say after they get the shot, if it works, it feels like a big weight is lifted off you, like you were carrying a heavy backpack or rucksack on your back. It just feels that it's lifted off, and that's what it felt like after I got the shot. Why did you wait so long? Pride. And DEA had still kept me on the job as an agent, even though I didn't really meet the medical requirements, and I was afraid if I spoke up that I would lose my job, even though nobody said that. That just was, you know, me, you know, in my mind, you know, making stuff up. But, um, you know, that's what, you know, I tell people and talk, you know, you know, don't be too proud to ask for help. And before this happened, I was this type A guy. I always want to do everything myself and everything. But being in my situation blind, I need a lot of help. And it was probably better for me that I learned to ask for help. And learned to trust people and spoke out for help for this PTSD. And I just, I can't say it enough if, you know, there's probably going to be a number of listeners out there that have it. And if you're not getting help, please do. There is some good things you can do for it. You know, thinking about your situation there, Joe, and, and I mean, and your condition at that point, 
the camaraderie that goes along with being a police officer had to be one of the most important things in the front of your brain at that time that, you know, it's understandable why you, why you didn't want to mention that. If you were fearing that they would let you go from DEA, you'd, you might lose that camaraderie. And, it, you know, thank God that the, uh, you know, the, this has all come to light now so that we do have a more understanding agency because, you know, when you came on, when I came on, you got involved, you know, I never went for counseling when my partner was shot down in Miami and the informant was killed. I still haven't been to counseling, which might explain a lot of my problems today. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's more research done on it. There's more alternatives to get individual help. So I can understand, what you know, why you would just keep that to yourself. You don't want to lose that job. That That is so important to us. I mean, that's who we are. My When I retired from DEA, my oldest son said, Dad, you can't leave DEA. You are DEA. Yes. That's the way we all are. I mean, it's just a, it's a dedication to duty and a dedication to mission and a dedication to each other. 100%. And I had a lot of support at that hospital. And DEA, they stepped up. I, I can tell you that's for damn sure. When the chips were down for me, DEA stepped up. And at the time, our administrator, Michelle Linhart, she came to the hospital and she asked my partner, Travis, what does Joe want? And Travis said, Joe would like to keep working. She goes, I'm going to make that happen. Mm-hmm. She's phenomenal. You know, and thank, and thankfully, but you know, they, they figured out the numbers. People think if you get a medical disability, it's all tax free and all that. It's not, <laughs> you know, you do good for the first couple of years, but they actually figured it out that I would do a lot better retiring as a regular agent. So they actually did me a huge favor by that. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So, because we had Michelle Linhart, you know, on the on the uh, on the podcast, she was a hoot. I think we talked about that earlier. She poofed her hair out. You know, <laughs> you talked about the the the, the two uh, Asian brothers. One beat his head, you know, with a board to uh, raise his eyes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I still can't believe it. Oh, that's funny. That, that should that should be a failure right there. A judgment. You whack yourself in the head. But no, what what an awesome lady. And I think one of the things I think the reason she got it too is she she started off as an agent too. I mean, she started off as a Baltimore city cop. I don't know if you knew that. Yes, I did. Yeah. Well, I've trying to tell you something you didn't know. So, uh, I know Murph's waist size, it's not 32. But, um, but so, so let's talk about though, the process of your recovery. So, um, you're starting to come back out of it. How long does it take before you're eventually out of the hospital? How long are you in there before, um, they take you out? Walter Reed National Name, I was two months, and then I was shipped down to the um, McGuire VA down in Richmond, Virginia, which I spent another month at. And a kind of, you know, funny story is, you know, I was in Walter Reed, and they're like, today, okay, Joe, you're going to put your shorts on and your T-shirt. How much time do you need? Oh, I need 10 minutes or whatever. So one day I'm sitting there. Um, with um, my wife, we actually got married in the chapel at Walter Reed at the time and um, with a physical therapist. And they're like, they had me my shirt, T-shirt and shorts. And I'm feeling these shorts. And I'm like, damn, these things don't feel like my size. And I said, what size are these? My wife's like a church mouse or she doesn't say a damn word. <laughs> the therapist, let me see. So she grabs them. She says, well, they're medium. I took them things and threw them across the room. I said, I'm a big fella. I wear extra large. If I would have put those extra large shorts on at that point, they would have fell straight <laughs> to the floor. 
I can imagine how much light, weight and, and muscle mass you must have lost. Well, or... you figure, okay, when I was shot, I was 230s. I guess I got down to like 160 in the hospital. Oh, my God. But they wouldn't let, they wouldn't, my wife wouldn't let them tell me what I weighed, but she knew I'd throw a hissy fit. <laughs> well, apparently you did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not wearing no medium shorts. Yes, when I, those medium shorts, yes. And then it came a, a time and point where, like, Joe, you need to take a shower. We'll help you with that. And for some reason, I thought there had mesh over my brain that my brain was exposed. I'm like, I can't get my brain wet. And my wife was like, Joe, you have skin there. I'm like, I do? And she goes, yes. I said, okay. So you're talking about losing all your dignity. You're, you know, you're going in the shower with some nurse you don't even know. This guy's doing all this rubber rain gear on and to make sure you don't fall and bust your butt, you know. And I guess, okay, I guess, I guess we're doing this live, you know. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> well, it might not be for a Kansas State trooper, but it is for us. Hey, look, I broke both of my arms. I had five breaks between two arms, and you want to talk about anyway? I nowhere near you, Joe, but I'm telling you. But when you're trying to wipe with two broken arms, let me tell you, it's <laughs> oh. difficult. <laughs> I had casts on both arms, and it's like. It all became a game of game of pool. It's angles. It's all about angles. Enough said on that. Let's <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> so, and, and, and another kind of funny thing is that you know I grew, I grew up in the city of Detroit, and my brain was a little mixed up for a while. So there was like three days where I thought I was African American, and I was talking and acting like I was African American from the city. Really? And my <laughs> my very serious Asian. Neurosurgeon, man, eye surgeon came in one day. His name was Dr. Chung. And Travis said, Dr. Chung, I just want to tell you, Joe thinks he's black. He goes, Really? That's pretty funny. And Dr. Chung starts laughing. He's this very serious, very serious man. And my dad said, Well, he is from Detroit. <laughs> You know, there was a great episode on Third Rock from the Sun. I don't know if you guys have ever watched that. Oh, well, Oh, yeah, man. And they, so one day they decided – so Nina was uh, Dr. Solomon, I think his name's assistant, and she was black. And, of course, they're all white and they're, you know, aliens. And so they decide one day they're going to be Italian, then there's this, and then they decided they're going to be black. And Nina comes in, starts saying something, says, Nina, you have no idea what it's like to be black. And it's oh, like, Jesus. <laughs> all I can think of that of Robert Downey, you know, on uh, – what was that uh, – War movie with, uh, oh, I just spaced out the name of it. I'll, I'll think of it. Uh, Tropic Thunder. Oh, yes. I'm just a dude playing a dude playing another dude. Yes. <laughs> so how long, when did you finally realize you weren't black? Well, a couple of days later when my brain got back together, you know. Oh, wow. man. Did you have any other hallucinations like, you know, you were Superman or Spider-Man or uh, maybe an no. FBI agent? I, I didn't try to jump out of the window or anything. But <laughs> they kept me in check. But they did bring all like our fast regalia in my room and had all these guide arms and Spartan helmets and everything. And then when I got discharged out of there, they were peeling the stuff out of the off the walls and actually stuck to some of the walls. And so they ripped like part of the plaster and the paint off. And somehow the guide arm um, actually got poked through the ceiling at one point and they're probably happy they got me the hell out of there. Talk about a bunch of bulls in the china shop. Oh my! Oh God. yes. Oh yes. Yeah, but that you know, it's one of those things. So, um, but so, how long after you're injured and your recovery is it before you're back on the job? Before you know, they they figured out. So, how long was it, and where, what did you end up doing? Okay, so it was two months at Walter Reed, another month at the Heinz VA. Then I got to go home. 
and no, I'm sorry, McGuire VA. Heinz was blind school. And um, so I got to go home and continue recovery, but I would go once a week back to Heinz to get, um, no, I'm sorry, McGuire to get training on blind skills and how to use the blind software because when I was in high school, of course, there was typing class, but I'm like, that's for girls. So I didn't learn how to officially type. So I was like, you know, the two finger hunt and peck person and being blind, you can't type like that anymore. So I actually had to learn how to type officially being blind. So that was part of the class, one of the classes I had and being able to navigate with the blind cane and everything. So, but then that lasted for a little while and then time is passing. I still don't have the plate in my head. So they finally think I got hurt October 31st, 2011. Finally, they scheduled to put in the plate in my head in July of 2012. I guess they waited for a while, but the chance of rejection is less. So they have less complications. So went back um, to Walter Reed and the neurosurgeon, Dr. Rosenbaum, who worked on me in Afghanistan. He's the one to put the plate in my head. Uh, did did he come back just for the operation? No, he was he was stationed at at that Walter. hospital. Oh, okay. Yes. And his deployment was done. In fact, I was when he came back from overseas. Um, I was his very first patient that he had, and he saw me walking down the hall with my ex wife, and I started talking to him. We got in there. He started crying because he knew how bad it could have went the other way. Yeah. Wow. What what just a small world it is where the surgeon who works on you in Afghanistan is the surgeon who works on you back in the United States. Yes. So they put the plate in my head, and then they kind of have what I call an intervention on me. They're like, Joe, we're not just charging you out of here until you commit to a full-time blind school. And being full-time, you have to stay inpatient there. And there was there was none by the house. Um, they tried to get me to go to one in Palo Alto Alto, California. We called out there, did not get a warm and fuzzy. Then I was talking to other people and my nurse liaison, and they really recommend another one in Hines, Illinois, just outside of Chicago at the Hines VA. They said they're really good with younger vets and they really good with technology. So we called out there and I had a really good warm and fuzzy. And the point being is I'd have been deployed for the last couple of years a lot and then been in the hospital and I'm blind and I'm scared to death at this point, to be quite honest with you. It's like the last thing I want to do is go somewhere strange again. You know, I'm finally back home sleeping in my own bed and everything. But the good thing was they could get me in there quick. So I volunteered to go there. So they discharged me. And then a couple of weeks later I went there and, it was one of the best things I've actually did because it t teaches you how to be really independent blind. Um, to continue working with the talking software, teach you how to use an iPhone and an iPad with the voiceover on. It's really easy for a blind person to use once you learn. So I can do all the text messaging, emails, search the web, the whole nine yards and worked on my mobility more and was able to start really working out again and talk about, you know, the stereotypes of the public has of somebody blind. You know, what is the stereotype? You know, you wear dark glasses, a cane, and you can't do much. And because people think you're blind, you can't hear also. So they talk to you really loud. I'm like, I can't see worth a shit. 
but I can tell you, I can hear really well. <laughs> and that's that's like being in a foreign country. You think you'll make people understand yeah. if you yell out or do you understand English? Do you understand English? And talk no, slower. And, he, and talk slower. <laughs> now it doesn't work. Hey, but you know, I got to tell you though too. Um, it, it's it's a it is kind of fortuitous because normally with our guests, Joe, you know, we send them a, a mic for the computer. That was going to be a challenge with you. And then this platform you use, it's called Riverside. They actually happen to have an iOS app, an Apple app that allows us to. So we put a headset. I mean, this is the first time we've done this. And I think we were saying to people, it sounds great. You've got a headset on with a boom mic and it plugs right into your phone. And we're able to actually record this and do this. And, you know, one of the reasons, man, is because you're able to, uh, you had a friend come over just to make sure you had it set up right. But we've done all of these recordings where you've just launched the app yourself and we do it from there. And it's like, I, I mean, I, I may have some of our other guests. We've had some technically challenged guests. <laughs> and yeah. This is so much easier. Just plug it into your damn phone. Oh, yeah. With technology and like people like, you know, Braille. I said, they really don't teach Braille anymore with all these technology. You know, there's apps on there that tell me the color of something, how much money I have. There's another one um, that you click on. It's kind of like FaceTime or Skype where somebody's always on the other end. If you need help trying to find something, you get stuck somewhere. Um, it's all free and everything. So this so, is... so you mean that you can actually, so um, you're actually able to then use the phone and broadcast to somebody on another end and they will give you your surroundings? Yes. Nice. That's fucking awesome. See, we learn something new every day. Well, speaking of learning a lot of things new, you had to learn a lot of things new, um, Joe. L let me ask you though, one thing to see if you've learned this. Uh, you talked about reattaching the retinas and, I know that you've talked about um, the the blindness. Is the blindness permanent, or do you see anything, uh, any uh, minor light, or you know, or any kind of sh anything? Well, th th that's a good question. My right eye, pretty much nothing. If the eye doctor shines a light right in my eyes, I think there's a light, but my left eye is a little better. Um, I so can does see that mean there's hope then uh, with yes. stem cells or transplants yes. or anything? Yes, and my left eye right now, I'm twenty four hundred. Anything worse than 2200 is legally blind. I can see light. I can see some shapes as a big color contest between light and dark, and I can see some movement. And um, what's limiting more sight is I have a artificial cornea in my left eye, but my optic nerve and retina are still very damaged. So they feel with the advancements in stem cell in two to five years, that they feel they can get me quite a back, bit more sight in my left eye and potentially more for my right eye also. So there is hope. Is there any possibility, I mean, even at 2400, are you able to use any kind of magnification or any glasses to be able to see Not clearer? at this point, no. Maybe okay. it gets a little better, but they do have some devices like that. But really at this point, not yet. You know, they're just really working on the stem cell and they've done some whole eye transplants at the University of Pittsburgh as a teaching hospital. But the problem is it's not transplanting the eye. It's all the millions of what axons and ions that connect your brain to your eye to be able to see. That's the challenge with that. But they are trying to work on that. Murph's working on a face transplant, but it ain't going to happen before he goes to Florida. So... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, but let's, let, you know, what, um, I'm just interested in just from your standpoint, what's a day like for you? In other words, um, obviously things have changed. So now that, um, we want to talk about your bodybuilding and we want to talk about some of the motivational speaking you're doing. So you've always been kind of physically fit. Um, but 
what was the importance of bodybuilding for you and how did you have how did you manage that because so much of bodybuilding is about being able to see the symmetry of your muscles and being able to see the development you know and working to make that happen so you know what was the importance of bodybuilding for you let's talk about your public speaking and then we definitely want to talk about the one of the awards you just won oh yes um that's well with bodybuilding it's something like i did I've always been involved in competitive sports to college, played football through college. And after college, I got in some bodybuilding, but there's something I could do competitively still. And I was good at it. And it was a big stress relief for me too. Working out is a very big stress relief for me. So after I was hurt um, and I learned I could start working out again, it was something I still can do. And it's something, a part of my life I could still control. Um, it was a little bit taking to get used to working out blind, you know, you got to worry about crashing into somebody at the gym or hurting yourself or just imagine working out, you know, and close your eyes, your balance is off at first and stuff. But I think my balance is actually better than it was before. So, but it goes back. I have to rely on people to see how I'm looking. So I had to hire a coach where we would do, we do check-ins with pitchers, um, at least once a week. It comes closer to a show. It's a lot more. And we do video check-ins to see how I'm looking. And the coach will adjust my food intake as far as calories and things up or down, depending if we're trying to gain more muscle or lose more fat and adjust my cardio activity and does all my supplementation with vitamins and things like that. But you really got to rely on somebody. You know, I can feel I'm getting leaner, but, you know, it's a whole different ball game. I, you have to get for these competitions. You have to be what's called peel to the bone where you see every striation in your muscle. So I was nervous about doing it. So wife, my wife at the time was competing and she had a coach and we met the coach and worked out. And he's like, Joe, why don't you compete again? I'm like, I don't know how comfortable I feel with that. He goes, let's just put you on a mini diet. I'll do it for free and we'll see how you're looking. So we do that. And he's like, Joe, you need to get back up there again. I'm like, uh, I just don't know. He said, let's, let's try. So I agreed to go ahead and do a competition. This is 2015. I did this, uh, NPC show national physique committee. It's like the division one in amateur bodybuilding down in Virginia beach, the Virginia beach grand prix. I did the open, which means all ages and I compete in bodybuilding and you go by weight classes. At the time I was a heavyweight that's between 199 and 225 pounds. And I did the masters, which was the old people class. And so, you know, basically we go in there with our walkers and, you know, kind of roll onto the stage. <laughs> um, so, but I, I won it all. I, I won the open with the young fellas and I won the masters. And Sweet. I just remember being, being backstage, just crying. I'm like, I can't believe I'm still able to do this. It just felt so good. And then that enticed me to go on to the national level and there's a handful of shows. If you win your class in the national level, you become a professional bodybuilder. So that was the goal. And the first national experience I did, I placed pretty damn good, especially for the first time. And then I continued doing that. And then finally, um, this last July, 
at the Masters Nationals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I became an IFBB, International Federation of Bodybuilding, professional bodybuilders. I won my age class from 50 to 59 years old as a super heavyweight, and I became the first blind IFBB men's bodybuilder in history. Outstanding. Now this you is absolutely you. Yes, absolutely. Proud of you, brother. Damn. Thank you. And like people find out I compete. You do you know, do you compete against other people with handicaps? I said, No, I'm the only blind one out there. <laughs> you know, so I gotta have the you know, basically an expediter helps me get on stage and make sure I'm facing the right direction and you go through your poses and routine and all that. Make sure you long- put your speed on before you went out there. Oh yeah. And you know, thank you. Because if it's a medium, it, you know, you're there to help me, you know, grease myself <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, but hey, look for bodybuilding though. He does wear a medium so that it all shrinks down, and he looks like he looks bigger. I mean, body wise. Oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. of course. You know, it's all an illusion, right? <laughs> hey, I got a question for you about that too, because I used to read uh, a lot of stuff on triathlon stuff. And a guy named Chris Maka was like the triathlete of the decade, and he talked about he learned a technique from bodybuilders to where they bulk up a lot of times with liquid and stuff. And like you say, before the show, they, they were able to get rid of all of this liquid so that their muscles, like you say, would, uh, you know, you'd see everything. What, what kind of technique do you, I mean, is that still a technique they use? Is like, how do you shed all that water? Yeah, it's called dropping your water. You can use, um, they have like natural diuretics you can take. And some people take prescription diuretics and you cut your water off at a certain part certain time like before the show and the day of the show you're you're basically you can have like eight ounce or half a cup of black coffee in the morning and take sips of water so basically you're getting rid of all that um that water in between your muscles so you can see your definition more when you drop your water you can lose like six seven pounds just by dropping your water wow yeah that's i mean i've been out on the bike before too i'll come back and literally just Two, three hours out on a bike, you can drop three, four pounds. But it, it, it's a science. You know, the, the bodybuilding, everything is the goal to, like, that day of the show to looking the best you can. So, you know, one thing off a little bit or not on a little bit, it affects you how you look. And that's why a, a very good coach is very important that can kind of see how you're doing and kind of, you know, adjust things. Now, when you're when you're really getting close to the competition, how many calories are you eating a day? Because I know you're working out hard. My off season, I'm probably eating like five or six thousand a day. Because off season, I get pretty heavy, up to two seventy. Um, before competition, I'm probably down to a couple thousand calories. So you're weak and tired. And you can barely get your ass off the couch. Or you just that's where that mental toughness comes in. It's like I got to do this, you know. And a lot of people can't. And a lot of that's why a lot of people don't look as good as some people because they just don't have that mental toughness to do it. Uh, Once you survived, I would think that's one of the easiest things you do in life. Well, and that's it. People, how you do this show? I said, this ain't shit. There you go. <laughs> I do this standing on my head. You know, and this ain't, you know, I'm not you know, worried about living or dying. You know, I'm over in Afghan doing missions and on the police department, you know, that's life or death. This isn't life or death. Right. This is just, you know, suffering, you know, yeah, I'm not running into somebody's house, getting my ass locked in the house, wondering how the hell am I going to get out of there? <laughs> exactly. So not only the bodybuilding, you know, I've ran 5K races blind. Um, I, with special equipment, I hunt and shoot blind. And since I've been blind, I've shot four deer. I've got two alligators in Louisiana, and I recently went to Brandywine, West Virginia, and shot a black bear. 
Damn. West by God, Virginia. There you go. West by God, Virginia. Well, it's Brandywine, too. It's not Blow Me, West Virginia. So it's much, <laughs> much better out there, too. Joe, I mean, that that's just freaking amazing. But would you – so let's bring back because you took a lot of these experiences – and you decided to speak about them. So did you do the speaking because it was cathartic for you? Um, did you do it because you really wanted to, you know, share your story? Um, you know, what led you to decide that you wanted to speak to people about this? And what's been the impact? Well, I was kind of voluntold to speak the first time. Um, DEA headquarters was having an employee with disabilities week. And they're like, Joe, you need to come talk at headquarters about your situation. And honest to God, I'd never really been a big public speaker before that. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell my story. So I got up there and spoke at our auditorium at headquarters to a packed house. And it was on video there. And I knocked it out of the park. So I'm like, okay. Um, And then they started asking me to do more speaking through DEA to speak to basic agent training classes that are coming through the academy about, you know, hey, this is what you possibly are getting into. This is what could happen. These are some of the mental strategies I've used to deal with this. You know, I spoke about the importance of being in big, good physical shape and, you know, being up to speed and all your shooting and all your tactical techniques and, you know, and stuff like that. And I was assigned to the personal recovery unit at DEA which they train agents before they go overseas, um, what to do, and if you're captured, what to say, not to say, how to escape. And I taught a class about overcoming adversity and that. So I started speaking in that. And then I learned that, hey, me speaking about this is very therapeutical for myself. And I've always been in a profession where I'm trying to give back to the community and this and that. And I found this is the way I also could give back. So that led me speaking to other like law enforcement groups. I spoke to high school sports teams and all kind of stuff. And and some of the after action I've got back and there have been people in the groups I've been speaking to that felt that they were going to commit suicide. And after they heard me speak, they're like, my life was really not that bad. So that made me feel good, too, that I'm helping other people. You're still saving lives, man. Still saving lives. You know, it's not the same. I don't, can't do the job like I used to, but it's, you know, like I tell people, being blind and everything, it's more than one way to skin a cat. If you want to do something, you could figure out a way to do it. It's like with my lifting or hunting or different things. I can't do things the way I used to, but if you want to do something, you can do it. Yeah, there's so much technology out there today and so many ways to accomplish things. Um, yeah. Uh, and the other thing, too, I still see here the, a lot of the military's creeped into it because you talked about some of my after action. A lot of us would call that feedback. We get feedback, but it's still my after action report reported <laughs> to me by the by the first sergeant. But uh, but yeah, but I got to tell you, though, too, um, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard a book? Um, heard of a book or listened to it called uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Dr. Kenneth Gilmartin. I've heard about it, but it's definitely something I need to listen to. I'm going to send it to you. So you tell, do you listen to Audible? How do you, how do you listen to Yes, book? audible.com. I, I'm going to send it to you. You use your uh, email address we use for the show? Yes. I'm going to send it to you. That, I'm going to find out, make sure it's on Audible. That was one of the biggest 
probably best books for me because it put a lot of things into perspective. Because like you said, you know what cops do? They tend to hold it in. They tend to isolate themselves. You tend to come home after tough shifts and say, I don't want to make any decisions. I don't care. You just kind of get into your cave. You isolate yourself from the rest of the world. And that's one of the worst things to do is, especially with you, um, you know, and what you've gone through. I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't know. I'm like you, I, I would figure out a way, but I have no idea what it, what it's like to be like, uh, with lose your you know sight. Who really helped me. I don't know if you gentlemen ever heard of a, um, Louisiana trooper, Bobby Smith, who was shot in the head and lost his sight. No, I'm very, or knew him very well. Um, he actually, um, he called me after I got injured and we had a conversation and he, you know, talked to me, which I appreciated. And he said he was the only person to ever get kicked out of blind school because he was in a real bad pity party for himself. And he took on the bottle pretty heavy. And it was his buddies that saved his life. And they're basically, Bobby, you need to get out of this freaking funk, buddy. You need to do something about it. And he did. And he had a pretty rough go at it. He's deceased now. And he lost his daughter and son both the traumatic events and um it just that helped me a lot hearing from him too and he had we we shared we spoke at some of the same law enforcement training conferences over the years and and he had one hell of a sense of humor i mean he just he'd have you falling out of your chair laughing and when he's teaching class he would make you laugh and within five minutes he'd make tears run down your cheeks i mean he was a phenomenal speaker one of the best i've ever heard anywhere yes yes he was and i Listen to a lot of listen to a lot of his talks and stuff, and kind of gauge some of my speaking around how he did things, also, because he was just so powerful the way he did that. Do you know a retired agent named Steve Peterson? No, He's, I don't. He was uh, the training coordinator for the Atlanta Field Division. That's how I got to know Bobby was through him uh, putting on the state and local classes. Um, Steve was, you know, if you ever need any information about Bobby or his family or. or I'm sure you've got the connections already, but Steve would be a great resource for you. And, uh, and of course, I just want to throw a shout out here to uh, Dick Kroc, who's a retired DE agent out of Atlanta, supervisor who was on the trauma team. And I know he's had a big, big impact on your life as well as a lot of people's lives. Oh, definitely. And he's the one that got a hold of Bobby yeah, to call him. Dick is too. phenomenal. An another um, retired agent, uh, in fact, he retired as SAC in Miami, was who called me after I was hurt was A.D. Wright also. He had got shot during the undercover deal and lost sight in one eye, too, and he kind of helped me through a lot of things also. Yeah, A.D. and I were agents together down in uh, in Miami back in the 80s. And his partner, Dave Gaddis, is the guy that saved A.D. He killed the guy that shot A.D. Again, okay, such a small world. Hey, Joe, before, before we close up, we're kind of getting to the end here, but I do want to bring up something, too, because you have also a special place in DEA history. You were the first DEA agent ever to receive the Secretary of Defense Medal for the Defense of Freedom. So this was instituted after 9-11. Uh, it's the military. It's the civilian version of the military Purple Heart. And so, uh, I mean, you were the first DEA agent ever to receive that. And we're glad you received it as opposed to, like you say, the Angel Flight. Yes. I'm glad you got that award. Um, and you've received so many awards. And I'm, I don't want to make this sound trite, but it's like, you know, when we had Mike Neal on, Mike was the uh, shooter, uh, the Ar uh, Arkansas game and fish officer who took out the two West Memphis uh, shooters who killed the West Memphis police mm -hmm. officers. And he got, he said, look, I got so many words. He said, I, I just didn't want him anymore. And he would, he would, he went through the same issues, PTSD, thought about suicide. But, but I'm telling you, I mean, uh, just me, I'm thinking, you know, awards are fine, but you know, I, 
wouldn't you, I mean, I would trade everything just to, I, and you can't go back, right? But you'd say, I'd trade everything just to be the way I was before, you know? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And I actually got the Congressional Medal of Bravery too for actions I did the day I got shot. It's fantastic stuff. I'm, and the story, I mean, you, you know, we try to incorporate your humor into all of our interviews and we have a little bit here, but your story is just so phenomenal. What you've achieved in life, what you've overcome and the motivational uh, value that you provide to others who have actually suffered worse than you, but they look up to you because you're standing up and, and I mean, it's that mindset. You, you've got, you've got the warrior mindset. Yeah. And life's not over, brother. No. And like, if I get my sight back or more, it's great. If not, I'm going to continue going out there and kicking life's ass every day. You know, people you don't go. even fathom. I live by myself. <laughs> I don't live with anybody, you know, you're, you know, I need help with certain things, but you know, I'm pretty dang independent for my situation. Yeah, I think my life would my wife would enjoy me living by myself. I don't understand that shit. Well, the way things are going with your move right now between the roof and everything else, that, that may happen sooner rather than later. Murphy's law, brother, it's always there. Whatever can go wrong will. It does. Uh, it did yesterday. Yeah, I should. Hey, well, Joe, before we finish up though, let's let's talk about what we can do for you because um we are in the business of launching people's career into the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. We we like to say that, but we've had <laughs> we've had uh James Murr Murray on, you know, from in TVs and Practical Jokers. He had a book out. Lou Velozzi was on and he ended what did he say, Steve? He ended up like afterwards got ten calls from agents he or said something. No less than ten uh, potential producers called him about doing something with his story. So I know that you have talked about a, a, a book and a movie, and you've actually done some work on this. And actually, at one point, this was presented to Mark Wahlberg, did you say? Yes. Mark is a, Mark's a big fan of DEA. He's a supporter, believe it or not. Well, and we happen to have a connection to Mark because Ed Davis was on uh, um, our prior episode, I believe it was 18, and uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. And he had a joke. I said, is it true that you're Mark Wahlberg's personal trainer? He says, well, look, the problem with Mark is um, I, I stayed up too late for him to work out, and he got up too early for me to work out. So <laughs> he never did. But So what's the status of that? What, what um, w you know, where are you at with both where, of those? You know, we're, you know, hopefully somebody, you know, we have a book that's pretty much written, so we're just trying to find an audience for that. Um, there's been talk about the screenplay also, um, but the focus right now has just been on the public speaking, getting me out there more, getting more people to know my name, hearing my story, and then we're hoping that those other things will fall into place also. And speaking of falling into place, you know, you can reach out to Joe over at his new website, joep.us. That's J-O-E-P.us. And I'd encourage you folks too, to, to, to go, go connect with him. But you don't know, like with Steve and JP that go out and do speaking things. I, if you're out there, you're, you're with the company or you're looking for a speaker, we've spent quite a bit of time with Joe already. And this is my first time obviously talking with Joe, but Joe, you know, it's just, I, I can't, you know, I've been lived in foreign countries, been there, but, but for you to go over there and do what you were doing be, and all in the defense of freedom, all in the defense of the American way of life, I mean, I don't want people to forget that it's not just fighting the Taliban. The Taliban's main source of revenue was opium, was heroin. It was the stuff that's killing people here in the United States, you know, and in other places. And so this isn't just, ah, let's go bust a few dealers. These folks are the worst of the worst. And you volunteered to join the FAST team, to go into harm's way like that. And man, uh, you know, just... I don't know what, I, I feel so inadequate just even saying, you know, this is me saluting you because I, I don't know what else to do. Well, and the problem is in our country, 
um, nowadays, people don't realize freedom isn't free. Somebody has to go. It can't always be somebody else's father, mother, son, daughter. Someone has to go. And I volunteer to do my part for the country. And I think it's just a small part, but hey, I do what I can do. Well, all you can do is all you can do. And we thank you for everything that you've done. And I got to tell you, this is, you know, we would like to inject humor, like Steve was saying, but, you know, you can't be funny about some of this stuff. But what you've done and what you've come through and the fact that you've been able to, I'm so proud of you for the one thing, though, is finally reaching out and getting help. And I will tell you, I've lost more friends to suicide in that were on the job than in the line of duty, you know, and it's, you got to, you just can't understate it, you know, can't overstate it enough. You got to reach out and get help. And Joe, let's leave them with this. Is there a great resource or what would you suggest if somebody right now listening to this is thinking, man, it's just not worth going on. What's your advice to them? To reach out to a counselor to get some help. And you can, you know, you can get online and you can investigate and do research on people who specialize in post-traumatic stress disorder. And please reach out. And if anybody is listening and they need to talk or something, um, they can reach me on my email or my LinkedIn, and I'd be more than willing to talk to them and kind of um, give them some of the strategies and tell them about the stellic ganglion block and other things that I've implemented to help me also. You know, God bless you, man. It, that's... You, are you just hanging it all out there for anybody you don't know, Joe? I mean, you talk about a hero attitude, the warrior attitude. Ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to find anybody better than this man right here. Take advantage. He's putting it out there for you. If you're having problems, here you go. Here's a solution. And God damn it, I got to tell my wife to quit cutting onions while this podcast <laughs> is going on. Damn it. Damn it. I'm the same way here. It's, uh, I, I, so I have to take a deep breath here. Joe. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I don't get moved by a lot of stuff. One of the most moving things I went to was Arlington. The first time I ever went to Arlington National Cemetery. I, I mean, this this hits me the same way because you because we can put a face on it. We can see the people. We we all know people who've been personally affected by this. So um, you've done a great service. We thank you so much for being on this podcast and anything we can ever do for you. By the way, through the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet, check your email. I'm send, if, I, if that book is on there, I'm sending it to you because it made a difference for me and I think you'll enjoy uh, listening to thank it. Thank you. And I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you guys having me on your podcast too. It was an honor. Brother, and I got a, I've got to deliver a message. I don't know if you remember meeting Connie when we were in New York. Yes, I do. The, uh, the fundraiser. She passes on her hugs and kisses to you, brother. And right back at her. I'm, I'll make sure that gets taken care of for you. Thank you. All right, folks. we got to bring this to an end before I fucking get the onions going again. God damn it. <laughs> I warned you, don't get me around onions with this. I'm, there are, you just run out of words to talk about the, just the dramatic impact this guy has just on listening to him. And I mean, it's, this is me saluting Joe again. It's like, Steve, I mean, I, I tell you, that was probably the most emotional and most uplifting story I think we've told. We've had a lot of good stories, don't get me wrong, but this one I think hit, hit every high note. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And we told you that in the, in the, uh, before he, his interview started. Um, I'm just so proud of that guy because, you know, so many people would just give up on, you know, everything. He's, I can't imagine being blind. You know, I hope the good Lord never strikes me with blindness. But Joe is making the best of it. 
the things he's still doing a lot of things he didn't even tell us about out there. He's going snow skiing, he's going fishing, he's going shooting. I mean, he told you about. I think he's the doing bear. more stuff now, being blind, than he probably was before that. Yeah. You know, it's just he has opened up bow hunting, bear hunting. You know, all of these different things. It's like. Well, and then the he, he you know the world class bodybuilding. Oh, yeah, I love the winning the title was, against the people younger than him as well as the senior or the master's division. I mean, awesome. Yeah, and you know, I mean, he, the, everybody's got to look at him as some kind of hero to stand up on stage and do that. Because like he said, he doesn't know what he looks like. He's going to have somebody describe it for him. Wearing that little Speedo, that's not a lot. That's not real comfortable to look at for me, but uh, you might enjoy that. I don't know. Well, Steve, you know. The ladies might enjoy that. Can neither confirm nor deny, but uh, I'm not allowed to wear a Speedo except with a license because it's licensed <laughs> to thrill. Ooh. God. Oh, that's licensed to throw up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, guys, it, this that was such a great episode. I mean, so hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Again, give us your feedback. We got a lot of great comments about it. We really enjoyed that. And if you enjoyed it, please just go to Apple Podcast. Give us that five stars. I mean, it really helps us. But rate us what you believe. We're worth it. And if you think we're worth five, please, you know, please give us five. We're trying hard every week to bring you guys stories. I promise you, you don't hear anywhere else. And even if you might hear the same person, you don't hear the same depth and the same types of stories that we get out of them because we go long form. We go for as long as the story needs to go to tell the story. So yep. we like that. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be constantly updating it, you know, adding stuff. Again, go there, look at Joe's pictures. You want to see what a, a bodybuilder looks like that wins the, you know, uh, championships and is a member of the International Bodybuilding Federation. We got all the pictures on our webpage. So head on over there. Also follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook, Game of Crimes podcast on Instagram, paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes if you just plan, if you just want to do a one-off or just help support the cause. Hey, also, if you have any ideas for stories, use the Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com and mail us your small town police blotters or ideas for episodes. Send us anything you want on that except porn. Do not send porn. Steve <laughs> Steve gets excited. Uh, and also, Patreon, right, Steve? Patreon, you got to be there. We have got... November is going to be a great month for reviewing movies. I mean, we're zeroing in, you know, yep. it's going to be, we think it's going to be good. And then, of yep. course, December, we will be reviewing the greatest Christmas movie ever made. That's right, folks. Die Hard. Die Hard. Die hard. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Oh, That's go. what we're going to do. All right. So you could go over there, go to, game of, uh, go to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where you need to be, and that'll be the fun part. Now, Steve, next week. This is going to be a fun one, too. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> it is. Because he is launching the book, uh, and this is another cool one because we tell you we get both sides of the law, people who enforce the law and people who broke the law. And this guy definitely broke the law. I would say when you come out of Venezuela with 9,000 kilos of cocaine, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time saying it's personal use, aren't you, Steve? Absolutely, and and. I mean, just to give you a little teaser, this is somebody who was involved in the cocaine trade for 25 years, survived. I mean, wait till you hear some of these stories in the uh, in the pre-call with Luis. And this is, we're talking about Luis Navia here. Um, he was kidnapped once by an individual who was known to never release his kidnapped victims. He killed them all, and he didn't just kill them; he tortured them. Luis was kidnapped and survived. He was released. I'm I'm still shocked that that happened. Well, we won't tell you how, but I figured it out. I mean, it was like when you hear Luis, you'll you'll understand his theory behind how he survived getting kidnapped by Rascuño, a very bad person who, like you said, killed everybody else. So what he was did. his secret? 
Plus, the great thing too, Steve, by the time this podcast comes out, his book will have just launched. You can see it on Amazon. It's on Audible. It's on all the places. It's called Pure Narco. He wrote it with an author called Jesse Fink, who we've been in contact with. Folks, it is going to be a great episode. And this is one of those things. If you want to see what it was like to be, come from a life of privilege, a Cuban family, have all the money that you ever needed, and that simply wasn't enough, and this guy was addicted, obviously, to adrenaline, you know, and the power and the prestige, this is the story you want to hear, right? It's kind of like your life, Steve, power, prestige, you know, adrenaline. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very now you're similar. in Florida. <laughs> yeah, very, very similar. Now, this Driving is, your golf this cart. This is cool. And, and that's what the neat thing is about Game of Crimes is, you know, we, we primarily bring you good guys, but we also occasionally will throw in a former bad guy or a former bad girl. So uh, you really need to hear Louise's story. You want an inside look? At, I, I didn't even did a forward for his book, uh, a little promo for him. You want to get an inside look at what really goes on? I mean, things that we're not even on the law enforcement side aware of. This is the interview you want to hear. Yeah, and wait till you hear who some of his best friends are and who who he goes out to lunch with. This will shock you. So we're not going to tell you. You got to listen to the episode. So again, guys, thanks. Stay tuned. The next episode coming up, Luis Navia and his life of crime and his life of narco trafficking is going to be next. So thank you guys for staying tuned and thank you guys for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. <laughs>